You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16, and when you find that, I'd ask that you'll please stand for the reading of God's Word tonight. Numbers 16, a well-known portion of Scripture. And verse number 1, we're going to begin reading tonight. God's Word says to us, Now Korah. Now that just sounds bad to begin with. Now Korah. And uh, if I had to do that to my kids, now so-and-so, you know that things are going down quickly. And uh, so when you read, Now Korah, things are going down relatively quickly. All right? Now Korah, the son of uh, Izar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto him, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And Moses heard it, and he fell upon his face. Now, I'm just saying as a side note, that's a good practice when you're dealing with critical people that uh, instead of returning harshness with harshness, take it to the Lord in prayer first, get on your face before you deal with them, all right? And uh, it says, And he spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. This do. Take you censers, Korah, and all his company, and put fire therein, put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy Ye take too much upon you, you sons of Levi. You see how he's changing? Moses, you've taken too much on you. Moses said, no, you've taken too much upon yourself. They're going to have a little back and forth here. It's, it's kind of funny when you, when you read and hear all of this. And then in verse number 9, seemeth uh, but a small thing unto you, that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of the Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation and minister unto them. And he hath brought thee near to him, and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee. And seek ye the priesthood also, for which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron, that ye murmur against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land? So you see, Moses says, it's a small thing. And these guys, well, is it a small thing with you? I mean, a bunch of spoiled little kids, that's what it sounds like. And uh, is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou makest thyself altogether a prince over us? Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey or given us the inheritance of fields and vineyards. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. 
And Moses was very wroth and said unto the Lord, Respect not their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. And Moses said unto Korah, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron, tomorrow. And take every man his censer and put incense in them and bring, uh, bring ye before the Lord every man his censer, 250 censers, thou also, and Aaron each of you his censer. And they took every man his censer and put fire in them and laid incense thereon and stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may, may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of the Israel followed him. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children. And Moses said, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own hand. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. So if they die of natural causes, God hasn't sent me. But... If the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth, and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth, and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah, and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed uh, upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. I think I would have ran away also. And there came out of a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Eleazar the son of Aaron, the priest, that he take up the censers out of the burning and scatter thou the fire yonder, for they are hallowed. The censers of these sinners against their own souls, let them make them broad plates for a covering of the altar. For they offer them before the Lord, therefore they are hallowed, and they shall be a sign unto the children of Israel. Well, may God bless in the reading of his word, and you can go ahead and be seated tonight. Well, I, I thought if I had a, like a white, one of these white dry erase boards like Brother Chad has and I, in the Sunday school room there, if I, if I had a, one of those here and a dry erase marker and have class tonight, then, and I was to say to you tonight, uh, name, me, name, me some, name me some sins. And I have a, I have a feeling that 
uh, we would probably come up with a list and that we would probably come up with some of the big ones. If we had this list and I said, name me some sins, probably things like murder and, and maybe adultery and some of these big ones. Because the reality is in our, in our lives, we do categorize sin. There's some, there's some biggies that were like, okay, don't cross that line. And there's some that are like, well, that's bad. God doesn't like that, but it doesn't seem nearly as bad as this. If we're honest with ourselves, we do categorize uh, sin in that way. There is, a, there is an individual that wrote a book, and I haven't, still haven't bought it yet, but I've read a, you know, some excerpts and things from it. And uh, the, in this book, he said uh, there are two categories of sin, respectable and unrespectable sins. So unrespectable sins are those biggies, and respectable sins are ones that we may not call biggies, and that we are more acceptive to and maybe more prone to allow to exist in our lives than these biggies. Because oftentimes we can say we're not doing the inexcusable, so I'm not doing that bad so I can excuse these other things that are going on in my life. And so in this book he has a list of, of respectable sins in the, in the lives of believers. Here's, here's the list that he's, that he's given ungodliness, anxiety and frustration, discontent, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience and irritability, anger, the weeds of anger, judgmentalism, envy and jealous and related sins, sins of the tongue, and worldliness. Now as you listen to that list of sins, there are ones on that list that, uh, that when you hear that, maybe you would say even out of that list, you say, well, those are, I think more about, yeah, that would be definitely on there. And maybe there's some on there that maybe we even put even at a lesser scale. But there is one sin on there that I wonder if we, how much we've actually really contemplated in our lives. One that probably all of us have committed some of you may be doing it right now as I'm preaching right now. You may have been struggling with this a lot in your life. It's the sin of discontentment. Did you know that's a sin? The sin of discontentment uh, in your life? It's a very subtle sin. Oh, it's, it's not one of those flashing uh, ne neon light signs like there's a murderer on our hand. But discontentment is just as much a sin as murder or adultery or theft is. Well, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, it's not really up for a, a voting because the reality is sin is sin in the eyes of God. He has no ranking system. And discontentment is on a level playing field with any other sin that you may think about in your own life. And so this sin is very dangerous. Matter of fact, I would argue to say it should be up there with being one of the most dangerous sins. Because it's so easy to do. It's so easy to slip into it. And it's very subtle. And sometimes you can find yourself being discontent before you ever really realize you were discontent. Because it's the, it's the deceitfulness of sin. And you see, in, in reality, when we, when we look at this tonight, that we have to deal with this sin of discontentment. Because 
there's one thing that's bad about in our modern society is we have too many choices. And with that, it is fertile breeding ground for discontentment. We, you can choose whatever you want. Man, I love Amazon Prime. You can just about order everything you want on Amazon Prime. But you know what else you can order with that? Discontentment. Certainly you can. They'll send that to you for free. And it, it's not two-day shipping. It'll just come right to, your, right to your heart as soon as you start looking at stuff. And so God wants us to not be content with the sin of discontentment in your life. Like, I need to just work on these areas, and I'm going to leave discontentment off the list. And God's saying, no, no, no. Don't ignore discontentment in your life because it has a direct bearing on many other sins in your own life. And we're going to see that as we look at this text of Scripture tonight. And so as we look at Numbers 16, and uh, as I've studied this, many times we often refer to this as Korah's rebellion. But when I was studying this, I, often, I had to ask myself, yes, did Korah sin in their rebellion? Yes. But the real question is, what brought him to a point of rebellion? And when we understand that tonight, what brought him to a point of rebellion, which we will see, and I believe I can prove to you tonight, that it was discontentment that we can learn from that very thing. For as we finished our Bible reading tonight, that God said this was for a sign. In other words, a perpetual uh, memorial for us to always remember what got Korah into this position and that we need not repeat the same things and the same sins that Korah and his buddies committed. So when we look at Numbers uh, 16, uh, really the sin of rebellion is front and center. I mean, rebellion has hit new heights for the nation of Israel at, the, at this point. Because if you're a casual Bible reader or know your Bible, you know from the time of Exodus till the time uh, they get up to this point, they've been a rebellious lot of, of people. The people, what I would call the people on the ground, have been very uh, rebellious uh, against God. I mean, God would tell them one thing, they would do, do, they would do um, something else. For instance, God would rain manna down from them. And Moses would say, okay, this is how you're to gather manna. And on the last day, you'll gather twice as much because you take the Sabbath day off. When you read there, you know what they were doing out on the Sabbath day? Collecting, trying to collect manna. Like Moses just told you, don't go out on the Sabbath day. And what do they do? They go out on the Sabbath day. But they repeatedly do this stuff over and over and over again. The 40-year wilderness wandering that we find ourselves in at this point is a result of rebellion against God. God said, I'll give you the land of Canaan. Don't worry about the giants in the land. And they said, and we're not going up there. So God said, you're going to walk for 40 years. And then they said, and he said, don't go up. You know what they did? They went up anyways. And they got spanked bad, real bad. Why? They were rebellious against God. But what now we've come to a new level, what I call a new echelon of rebellion. Because it's, now it's not gone just to what I would call the average everyday person walking in the camp. It has gone now all the way into the upper levels of management. It has gone all the way to, almost all the way to the top, because they didn't get to Moses and Aaron. But those that were directly below them were clearly into uh, in this ground of, of rebellion. 
And so what had now become a problem amongst the people was now a problem with the people that were in power. And so here we have, and it's important us to understand who the characters that we're dealing with. Here you have Korah, who was a Levite, who was a leader in the worship of the things of God. The, the Levites had the responsibility, if you'll understand, they were the right-hand men of the priest. So you, uh, the tabernacle could only prop, properly work and function in such a way as the Levites were doing their job. So they had a very important role. Not everybody could come before God, but the Levites could. The men who also joined uh, in rebellion against Korah, they were princes or leaders among the nation of Israel. These were the cream of the crop. These were men that were looked up to. Moses learned to divide responsibility out. And uh, if you had problems, the, these princes would be the ones that would take care of the smaller problems and Moses take care of the bigger ones. So these guys were hand-picked men that were supposed to have a walking relationship with God. They were, they were supposed to be able to interpret and apply God's law and in all these small matters. So you have these men also joining in this uh, rebellion against uh, rebellion against God. And this rebellion is made by people that should be leading people closer to God, not further away. And in this new level of re rebellion underscores just the seriousness of how sin and uh, rebellion can grow and how sin uh, and rebellion, how it can grow so much because when you read through numbers, you're going to read through some things that maybe that you just read and you're like, okay, it's names and positions and all this. That doesn't really make, it, make a difference. But in this portion of scripture, it really does help you to understand. See, when they had the tabernacle built like this, the tabernacle was in the middle. The people were all around it. They had a buffer zone of the Levites that were around the tabernacle. So around each side of the tabernacle, there was four groups with three different tribes in each, each, each one of those. And they're, they're important for you to realize and understand. Because on the same side of the, of the tabernacle that the Kohathites of this chapter that, that, um, that Korah was a part of, they were camped on the same side that the Reubenites were right beside them. Is it a coincidence that we have Reubenites rising up in rebellion with Korah? I don't think so. Because who do you think the Kohathites were talking to when they were camped beside the tabernacle? To the Reubenites that were, that were there. They mingled together with each other. And it's true. The Bible says that be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. They the the, the uh, Korah got it in his heart, affected other people, and that, that's where we, we get ourselves to here today. And I'm going to, we should understand, obviously rebellion, God is not in favor of rebellion. Rebellion against the clear revelation of God's word. There was no doubt who the leader was. There was no doubt that this was Moses. Moses tried to talk himself out of the ministry, and God made sure that he stayed in it, did he not? How often did God speak to Moses over and over and over again? They're on the march right now, but it was the same Moses that had went up to Mount Sinai there and had got the law. It was the same one that God spoke face to face. They knew, they knew that, that very thing. And here they were. It was, this is why rebellion is so bad. It, it is against the clear revelation of what God says. That's what rebellion is. And that's why God hates it so much. 
But when I, when I begin to look at this, I say to myself, is, is there more to this rebellion? And I believe that it's yes. Rebellion is just the fruit of, a, of another issue that was taking place here in this portion of Scripture. Rebellion, I believe, was a direct result of Korah not being content and those that were with him were discontent with what was transpiring and taking place at this very time. You see, we need to know this about Korah. That helps us understand why would he be so discontent. Now, uh, sometimes I, I have children and the teenagers sometimes don't like the little ones to be taking along with them. They don't want their little brother to be hanging out with them. Well, Korah had the little, I believe he had the little brother mentality. Because, see, everybody had a job to do. So when the tabernacle was taken down, it was meant to be transported. Everybody, every Levite had a job for them to, to do. The priests had their job. So what the priests would do is this. The priests, they would cover up all the furniture, like the Ark of the Covenant, the, uh, the table of showbread, the other pieces of furniture like that. They got to touch it, and they got to cover it up. The Kohathites were the ones who got to then walk with all the furniture. They're the ones that got to carry the furniture for how many years out in the desert? For mile upon mile upon mile, carrying the table of, of, of showbread there. And the Bible lets us know they couldn't even peek underneath the, uh, of the cloth. They would die if they saw what was underneath it. They couldn't, they couldn't touch it at all. God took it very serious. Now, I'm going to tell you this. When you get to walking, you can do a whole lot of thinking. I know Pastor Spencer used to be here, and he would talk about going walking out on the trail to do thinking and praying. Well, I think Korah, I think Korah did too much walking and too much thinking. Because I, I believe that he's walking and he's thinking, we got to carry all this furniture all this time. We're second fiddle all the time to Aaron and the priest. We, they, we do all the heavy lifting. They get all the glory. They get all the praise. And we got to do all the grunt work. We're just the low man on the totem pole in all, all of this. Shouldn't they have to carry their own weight? Please, tell me this isn't far-fetched. One, one person said this, every time the Israelites got ready to move, Korah is reminded of his place. Aaron first, Korah second. Aaron drawing near, Korah a few steps behind. Aaron touching the holy things directly, Korah's hands feeling the barrier of the claws, with Aaron and his sons have draped. Every time Israel moves camp, Korah's resentment grows. I agree with that statement. Every single time they moved, I could just imagine the veins bulging in Korah's head. He said, I'm going to show you exactly what you can do with this table of showbread, Aaron. I'm going to show you what I can do with it. You say, well, he's more spiritual than that. I don't know if he is. And I don't know if I would have been either. There probably would have been days my feet are tired. I have no Dr. Scholl's inserts. And we've been walking out here for how many miles? And it's, it's hot out here. And then you still want me to carry this dumb table? And they're like, well, we can become that way. And I think that's what Korah finally just, I don't know what got to him. But he finally snapped. And he's like, I've had enough of this. I, 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 I can do the job just as well as Aaron could do. I've been watching him the whole time. He's nobody special. I'm just as qualified as he is. Did we descend from the same father, Levi? 
They did. And so he became more and more content. But then we also see this. That Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth. Now this is very important for us to understand. Sons of Reuben. I believe I know where their discontentment came from. See, pastor is preaching through Genesis, and we're going to get to it short in a while here. But in Reuben, you know what happened in Reuben's life? Reuben at one point slept with his father's concubine, Billa. And the result was Reuben's right as a firstborn son was forfeited and was given to Joseph later. That's why jo Joseph had two portions in the land of Canaan because that was a reward of the firstborn. Joseph wasn't the firstborn. Reuben was it hundreds of years before this. Lost that privilege because of, it, because of Reuben's sin. Now fast forward it to 200 years or so later, or hundreds of years later, and here you have Levi who is able to approach before God. Do you know what? Levi was no choir boy in himself. Because Le Levi and his brother, they had a sister named Dinah. And Dinah, uh, she was abused immorally by Shechem. And uh, so Levi and his brother came up with this wonderful idea. Hey, we'll let you marry our sister if every single one of you gets circumcised. So they all got circumcised. On the third day when they were trying to recover, they went in and butchered the whole town. They did. And they ransacked the town. And they were like, you don't ever do that to our sister and we'll send you a point. Well, you said that was really bad. Yeah, it certainly was really bad. And yet we find them in a position where they are able to draw before God. Now follow me, connect the dots here. Don't you think the Reubenites are saying, you know how many years ago it was when my dad, my dad, he went to bed with Billa? And you forgave Levi, and they butchered a whole town, and all, all my dad is did this, and here we are stuck in this position the whole time. We have just as much right. We are a holy people. God said we're a holy nation. We should be able to serve God just like the Levites do. They weren't happy with the circumstances that they found themselves in. I, I, think, there was some, I think there was some bitterness in their heart. They were discontent. They thought, well, if God can forgive Levi, why can't he forgive the Reubenites? Weren't happy with it. And then these 250 men that also, they weren't happy. It wasn't like, well, they weren't doing anything. God had something for them to do. But what God had asked them to do, they weren't content with what God had asked them to do. Oh, probably it was neat at the beginning. And maybe they got tired of hearing people's complaints like this guy, well, this guy, his oxen just tread out all my carrots in my garden. What are we going to do about it? Well, we're tired of hearing about oxes and gardens. We want to do something bigger and better. We're a holy nation. We should be able to approach before God. We should be able to burn incense. Give us a censer and we'll show you we can serve God. See, they weren't, they weren't content with what God had given to them. And the position, the position that they were they were at. You see, yes, Korah and these men, they rebelled against God. But I believe that their rebellion was rooted in their discontentment towards God. Because really their discontentment wasn't directed towards Moses. It was directed towards God. See, they were going to learn that lesson the hard way. That Moses was God's appointed man when you do this. You're not bringing the problem before 
Moses, you're bringing it before God. And Korah's rebellion, as we look at this, should teach us about the seriousness, the seriousness and, and dangers of contentment. See, believe it or not, God got really, really mad. Like, really mad. So much so if Moses hadn't stepped in, we wouldn't be reading about these same group of people. We would have had to go find a new one starting in chapter 17. Because God was ready to one more time come out and wipe them all out, destroy, destroy the whole crowd. And God dealt with Korah in an unnatural, unprecedented way. Because God, God could have chose any way to kill Korah and, and, and his followers there. But God was doing it in such a remarkable way that it made everybody freak out. They did. I've seen some of these news stories about sinkholes sinking, swallowing up people's houses like that. And, and I've thought to myself, I'm God, I'm not near one of those, those sinkholes or something like that. Now, could you imagine a, a sinkhole like that just opening up? And I could just about imagine the sands opening up and they're just cleaving and then they're swallowing everybody up. And I think all the sand and everything just went back to normal. Everything looked normal, like, like, like total rapture, but the opposite direction. I mean, you know, this is like rapture in negative form because they were raptured and they were snatched out of here, but probably no place that you and I would ever want to go to, all right? And uh, they were swallowed up into this pit and, and, and they were gone, they disappeared. And I'll tell you this, I would have been running with the rest of the people. I mean, the, the ground clave, they could hear people screaming in this pit and then all of a sudden, nothing. Hear no voices or anything like that. They're totally disappeared. Mail and everything gone. No more. God was trying to show him a message. He said, this is exactly what I think about that. And then on top of that, he all these men that had censers, he had them, go ahead, light your incense, get your censers out, and everyone stand before the tabernacle of God. And I don't know if it came out from the Holy of Holies right through the front door, right out the gate, but I could just picture this rush of fire just coming straight out of the, the Holy of Holies and then just like fingers just spreading like this and then just people dropping, do, a, do fried chicken on the, on the ground. I mean, it was bad. I, I mean, peop, I, I don't know. There's instant incineration. That's, that's where it is right, right there, all right? And their ashes went to the wind, I'm sure. And all that was left that we have is their censers. See, God responded in a very abrupt manner, because as we read at the end, they took all those censers, they melted them down, and to put them on the altar as plates on the altar. So every time you went up there to offer a sacrifice, because guess how often people are all going to sin and have to use that altar all the time. And every time they go up there, they have to remember, where do these brass plates come from? Oh, yeah, I remember Korah and his buddies, they got all bent out of shape because things didn't go the way they wanted to. They weren't very happy with it, and they were swallowed up and burnt up. That, and, uh, man, we better remember this very thing. See, it was to be at this memorial. And I think we better be in our own lives that we need to uh, learn that it's a dangerous and destructive sin that discontentment is. You see, discontentment is, is, it's not wrong wanting other things, but when we're not pleased and satisfied with where we're at right now, now that's discontentment. Like, 
It's like if my car's breaking down and I want a new car, there's nothing wrong with wanting a new car. You probably should get a new car. God's not against you. If, you're, if your house is falling down, it's not wrong for you to want a new and better house. But the problem is this contentment comes in where if you don't get the new car right away and you don't get the new house right away, you become dissatisfied with what God has placed in your position at that current moment. You see, that's the difference. That's what we are, this is the discontentment that we are, that we are, that we are dealing with. See, it's so easy to become discontented in our, in our lives over, over so many different ways. I, I mean, I will be transparent and honest with you. I'm not always the best husband in the, in the whole world. You, you, ever, you ever believe that? And I bet if you're, a, if you're a man in here, you'd probably be honest. There are some days you're probably not a good husband either. You know what? It's real easy in a marriage that my husband is this way. He doesn't do this. He's, and, and the list goes on. And you become discontent with your husband. And you begin looking for greener pastures. Is that possible? It can go the opposite way also. Well, my wife, all she does is nag and disrespect me all the time. And, that, and uh, you become discontent with your wife. I think uh, as being a parent and being with a child, I am 100% sure I make my children not happy a lot of the time. <laughs> Pretty sure about that. And it's really easy, and especially for teenagers sitting here, to become discontent with your parents. Because you're not, well, that's not what I want to do. That's not the choice I'd make. That's not what I want to wear. That's not what I want to listen to. That's not where I want to go. I don't want to be at home at that time. i got to follow that dumb rule. I'm just telling you, it's really easy to become discontent. If I had parents like them, well, you don't know what their parents are doing at home either. You probably wouldn't like them either, and you'd have to move on to another set of parents. Just probably, probably, it's easy to become discontent with your job. I mean, sometimes work is, is, is not very fun. Brother Viss talked about this morning, people not showing up for, for work. Man, it can, be real dis, it can be really easy to become discontent when people don't show up for work. When you have hard employees you have to work with. Or maybe you're not thinking you're getting the recognition you deserve at your job, getting the pay you deserve, the benefits that you so rightly have coming to you. It's easy to become discontent with your job, isn't it not? You see, we can be discontent. We can even become discontent with the church that we attend here. No, really. I think of all these announcements. We got this going on and got this going on and got this going on. I can almost hear somebody in the back going like this. They got too much stuff going on here at this church. I mean, it's this, it's that, it's this. Don't they realize that I got a life out of church? Why? Well, I, I thought church was supposed to be your life, but I also realize you don't live here either. But don't, can't you hear somebody saying that? Like, I, I got to come in on Sunday, and I'm here all day Sunday. They got something going on Saturday, Wednesday, and then they want to go to this thing, and then they want me to bring my child to this. Yeah, 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 all of those things. People become discontent. You know what? Hey, I love our pastor that we have right now. But you know what? I'd be hard-pressed to believe that at some point or even in this room right now, somebody's been discontent with him. Oh, he's done something. Well, that's not, what I, that's not what I would do. Well, you're not the pastor, but I'm just telling you, it's easy to become. People leave the church because they get discontent with the, with the pastor. I've been here at this church long enough that I know there's people that should be here in this church service that aren't here because they got discontent with Pastor Spencer and, and left. And they didn't know the other side of the story. 
I, I'm just telling you, discontentment is so easy. To, it's so easy to, to creep in our life. You can go throughout the Bible, and I could just think of example after example after example of discontentment. I mean, just dumb stuff. You ever read the book of Esther? I mean, uh, you read about Haman in the book of Esther. You know why he got so bent out of shape? Because somebody wouldn't give him the respect. That someone wouldn't bow down to him. Someone wouldn't be nice to him. Oh, well, that's, that's just so terrible. So what we're going to do is kill thousands of people and we'll hang, put a big gallows in my backyard and I'm going to hang this guy on it. That's how far his discontentment went. He said, over some petty insult? Yeah, over some, uh, some awful petty insult. What about something like this? You ever read that story about Ahab? He wanted this vineyard one day and this guy named Nabal had enough gumption and backbone to say this is the inheritance that was given to us by God you cannot have my vineyard what's old Ahab do he goes home and cries and, and curls up in fetal position on his bed till his wife comes in says we'll take care of this sweetie and has Nabal killed and all of that because he was discontent because he couldn't have a dumb vineyard now it is in the grand scheme of things it's just dumb because in a vineyard what's that got to do with eternity I'm just telling you, you go through the Bible and you can read it over and over again. And even those that are closest to Christ can have a spirit of discontentment come upon them. Because I remember a couple different times, Jesus had to quell, quell the boys that he had around him because they were in an argument. You know what they're arguing about? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Who's going to sit on the left hand? Who's going to sit on the right hand? Why are you so discontent about that? Thank God that he's called you, he saved you, and you get to follow him and whatever he wants you to do, that you get to go ahead and do that. Who cares what job you get to do? You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But I read that guys that have been living close to Jesus were finding a spirit of discontentment that Christ had to deal with. So you may say, well, I'm really close to God and I'm really spiritual. That'll never happen to me. Well, take heed lest you fall, because the spirit of discontentment can come over all of us. You say, it's, it's destructive. You know what discontentment breeds to other people around you? You may say, well, I don't understand why my family, they're just not thankful or satisfied about anything. Just want to throw this out here? Maybe it's because you're not content in your own life and satisfied with what God's doing. Not saying it is, but maybe you want to entertain that thought for a moment. Because it could be beginning with you, right? Because we're, it can happen at our work. You're a boss at work, and you're like, well, I don't understand why my employees grumble. Or you're a manager. I don't understand why my crew is always grumbling. Could it be because they're a leader? is always grumbling and discontent, right? You see, it, because it spreads. And it can be destructive it, like this. It can ruin families, relationships, marriages. It can ruin a church. But the worst part about it is, and it should always be this way, it displeases God. Well, why is it so displeasing to God? When we're discontent, it displeases God because you're saying that Jesus is not enough for you. That's what pastor was preaching on James there. And when, when he was preaching that, I was just like, I knew where we were going. So I'm like, I'll preach the negative side of it for you while you're gone. Because <laughs> God is good. But when we're discontent, we're saying, 
And Jesus, do you understand, he is all-sufficient for everything that we truly need in our lives. The all-sufficiency of Christ is a wonderful Bible doctrine. He said, I'm not much of a theologian. Well, get a hold of that one. If you're going to forsake other doctrine, don't forsake the sufficiency of Christ. Because he's sufficient to save a poor, wretched soul like you. He's sufficient to give you eternal life. He's sufficient to seal you under the day of redemption. He's sufficient for everything that you need in your life. And when you say, and you become discontent with whatever and dissatisfied in your life, you're saying, God... You're not good enough any longer. And God, what you have in Christ, it's not good enough for me. I need more than what I have in Christ. That's what we say when we're discontent. And we have everything we could possibly ever want in Jesus Christ. But when we become discontent, we're saying Christ isn't enough for me. Well, I have, a, I have such a bad marriage. But you know who's such a better friend than my spouse? That's Jesus Christ. I can have a horrible marriage to marry more married to a horrible person. And I'm not, just want to clarify that tonight. I am not, but I'm saying, even if my wife was a horrible person, I have everything I need in Christ to even deal with a horrible spouse. You see, we have it displeases God because it says he's not sufficient for everything. It displeases God because you are saying his plans and his purposes for your life are not right or not good enough. When we're discontent, we're saying, what God you've allowed into my life is not, is not right, God. You did not get that email I sent you last week, did you? God's saying, I have all the plans. I design your life. I lead and direct your life. And when we are discontent with what God's doing in our lives, because that's, if you believe, as what was preached this morning, if you believe God's faithful, he's working in your life. He's doing something each and every day of your life. He's doing something in your life. And he's got a plan for your life. And if you believe that, then when we get a bit out and say, well, I can't believe this is turning out this way. God, you got to change this. You're saying, God, I'm not happy with what you're doing. I'm not happy with your plans. And then also this, it displeases God because it misrepresents God to a lost world. When we're discontent, that's what you are showing to the rest of the world. That's my God. My God is good up to a point. My Savior is good up to so far. But after so far, then, and that, you say, well, is the world really looking at me that way? They are. Paul was acutely aware of what he was doing in his life affected the lives of those around him. And so when we look at this tonight, just as God said, all right, get yourselves away from these guys. Separate yourselves because things are going to happen. You don't want to be nearby. I just think the same principle needs to be in our own life, that we need to treat discontentment just like the Korah and that rebellious group, and we need to separate ourselves from this sin. It is a sin, all right? And God's saying, let's separate ourselves from this. And I think each one of these groups, God gives us a lesson about dealing and separating ourselves from discontentment. If God, if God had Korah before us, I think he would have said to Korah, you need to learn to be satisfied and content with the position that you have in your life. I understand that you're not 
Aaron. I get that. But be content where you're at. Be content wherever position and title that, that you have found yourself into. I think one of the illustrations that come to my mind tonight is how many young single people in this world get tired of waiting for God's spouse and become discontent with waiting, end up in, into a marriage that now is taking them away from the Lord. I can think of somebody right now in my mind, not going to give any names, but I can think about it because you become discontent with your position in your life. God's called you to be single, be happy to be single. If, if you're called to be a widow or a widower, be content where the position that God has put you in. If you're not the preacher, be, be content. I've had to tell myself that, even sitting here recently. You're not the preacher. Okay, Lord, I got it. You don't get to preach every Sunday. Okay, Lord, I got it. You know, I have to learn to be content listening to all this. After you preach all the time, you under you will understand you would understand what I'm saying, but you have to learn to be content. If it's a church member that you're here to to listen, taking God's word applied to your life, be an encouragement to your church and your pastor. If that's the position that God's put you in, be content and happy with that. Then I I would also think this. I think if not only that that God um. That in whatever, not just the position you find, but whatever place or situation you find yourself in, just learn to be content. Yeah, Reuben, your dad messed up. <laughs> you know, what a dork. I mean, I can't believe he'd do something like that. I'm with you, Reuben, 100% of the way. Does it stink? Yeah. Does it stink that we still have to deal with all the effects that what your dad did? Absolutely. But being discontent is not changing anything that happened in the past. All it's doing for you, Reuben, is ruining what's happening in the present and into the future here. It, it certainly did, because these guys died. I mean, their future was done in a moment. And I'm just telling you, you just need to learn to be content whatever situation you find yourself in. Because not all life is, is going to be easy in some situations or, or more difficult than not. And some may be harder to be more satisfied and content. I'm, I'm at work and I have this lady that I work with and she would try the patience of Job. I'm just telling you. And I, I, and I, and I have to pray and I say, God, you got to help me to be content and be, be, be satisfied with you regardless of what's reciprocated or not reciprocated. That God, I knew you put me in this situation. God, you brought me here. And God, I'm just going to trust you in that. And that's contentment. Wherever God's placed you, if you're at whatever situation that he's put you in, just be, be content. Well, I just got to keep moving. No, you don't have to keep moving. Just learn to be satisfied where, where God has you at right now. Enjoy that. Let that be a part of your life. Be satisfied with that. And then I think also that those, to those 250 men, I think God was probably trying to tell them, you know what? You should just be satisfied for the provisions and what I've brought to you in your life. Because you know what they were saying? Well, Moses, you took us out of the land that floweth with milk and honey. Excuse me? Wasn't that the same place that you had to make like bricks without straw? And you were treated like slaves? Yeah, wasn't it that place that you were greatly afflicted? That's flowing with milk and honey? And the land of Canaan all of a sudden becomes the equivalent of Egypt? Excuse me? 
They thought that life was better for them there because of, they, weren't having, they weren't having green pastures out in the middle of the wilderness. And may I say this side note, they wouldn't have to been out in the wilderness if they hadn't been discontented and rebelled against God. They could have been a lot closer than they were at this moment. But God is trying to tell them, you know what, just be, be content with what I'm providing for you. Do you know what? Because they got so discontent, not just this group, but they got discontent to the point where God gave them manna every single day. Listen, the Bible says they begin to loathe, loathe, not just, I'm tired of having manna. No, hate manna. That's what the idea behind loathing, if I loathe you, it's different than saying I don't like you. But if I told you I loathe you, you might get a little cross-eyed with me. They loathed the provision that God gave to them, became discontent with it. And that's what this group is problem with. And I think sometimes if we're going to deal with discontentment, you just be satisfied with whatever God provides for you. And whatever, whatever comes to your life. So you may have no money. So you may have to pray week by week how things are going to work out. That's okay. Be satisfied with what God's, with what God's doing. I'm going to be late on a bill. Well, even if you're late, be satisfied with what God's doing. I don't know why he'd, be, why he'd want you to be late, but maybe there's something in it. I'm just saying, be satisfied with whatever God provides and gets for you. As I was studying this, and as we get near the end here, I was thinking, and I had a different conclusion, and then I came across this. I had asked my, uh, my daughter a long time ago, when I looked at this portion of Scripture, she thought, man, this is bad. It doesn't seem right that everyone got destroyed like that, men, women, and children. And so I tried to explain some of that. But then I realized sometimes when you read your Bible, you'll learn things that maybe I wasn't exactly accurate in everything that I was telling my daughter. Because I want you to just flip over to uh, Numbers chapter number 26. In Numbers chapter number 26, in verse number 10, the Bible says, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. Did you hear that? So it's the same story. And when that company died, what time the fire devoured 250 men, they became a sign. Now listen to this next verse. Notwithstanding, the children of Korah died not. Now that's important for you to get that. Because I'm going to read a psalm here. Okay? I'm going to read a psalm. I've already got it marked. If you want to turn there, that's fine. I'm just going to read it. It's Psalm 84. I'm going to read a little bit out of Psalm 84. But it says this. My Bible's got the titles there. It says, to the chief musician upon Gitta. Now listen, a psalm for the sons of Korah. Now this is years removed from this. But when you see that sons of, descendants of Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, he wasn't literally Abraham, he wasn't literally David, he was a descendant of. So we're dealing with descendants of Korah. Then you go down to verse 10. Listen to this. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, for the Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Do you know what that sounds like to me? 
somebody got the message. <laughs> Sounds like somebody said, whoa, we're not doing what Grandpa did. Gr Grandpa, he sure messed up, but he did leave us a legacy that we're not going to do that. And I'll tell you this, uh, you know what? We may not get to flay animals. We may not get to go in the Holy of Holy, but that we could even be gatekeepers because that's what these, these sons were doing. They were being gatekeepers. They were saying, well, praise God we get to do that. Praise God we are satisfied with what God has done for us. That is a far cry from number 16 and what their great, great, great grandfather Korah was. They were totally different. And I believe it certainly helped that they had that sign every single day. We're not going to be like grandpa. We're not going to do that. We're going to be satisfied and we're going to be content. And I'm going to tell you this. They learned. And I would, I would encourage you today to learn right now to be content and satisfied where God has you because God is good and his gifts are good enough for me. God is absolutely good. And I'm telling you right now, you say, well, I'm just slightly, con I'm slightly discontented tonight. I'm not sure if there's different degrees, but if, even if you're slightly discontented tonight, I would say you need to find an altar because I'm going to tell you this. It will fester and it will infect other people around you. And you would rather have to deal with it easily at an altar than have God open up the ground and to deal with it in your life. So as we look at this portion of scripture, did, did he rebel? Certainly. But it was found in discontentment. Don't excuse discontentment as your life as a some minor sin. Because it's not. God wants us to deal with discontentment. He wants a contented people. And may we do that very thing tonight. I'm going to go ahead and ask, ask that you'll stand tonight. We're going to bow our heads and we're going to have a word of prayer. We're going to have an invitation here. <clears throat> Lord, I just thank you for the chance to open up the word of God tonight. And uh, Lord, this this idea in our lives that sometimes we can rank sin, some being worse than others, some, some not so bad. But God, to you, all sin is bad. All sin needs to be dealt with tonight. And God, there may be somebody in here who's discontent over their situation, what's going on in their lives, what's transpired, their job, their marriage, the relationship with their parents, God, the list goes on. And God, I pray tonight that you'll deal with the spirit of discontentment if it exists in this room in the hearts of individuals. And God, today, I would just pray that you will help us just to be satisfied and content each and every day with our relationship with Christ. God, I just pray and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.